Last week, on the back of the sermon, uh, the sermon notes sheet on the back of the Confession of Faith, we had the four questions. They didn't get put there this week, but in place of them, I created an outline because we're going to be covering a lot of ground, or at least attempting to cover a lot of ground here in the book of Genesis. And to make it easier for you to follow along, you should have an outline in your bulletin. As I worked on this message, last week's message, I had quite a bit of time to prepare for. This week, not as much. And as I continued to work on it, it seemed as though the Lord was constantly changing my focus, or maybe it's just me being a perfectionist. Anyway, this is going to be an interesting experience because it's, it's actually my first attempt at preaching a survey overview of an entire book, and we're only going to get about halfway through the book of Genesis. But here we go. How, however, before we dive into Genesis... I need to do a quick review of last week's message. Last week, we looked at the foundational covenants that we find in the Bible because the story of redemption is a story of covenants made, covenants broken, but most importantly, of covenants kept. In last week's passage, Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, I focused on verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. As I mentioned last week, what's so interesting about this passage to me is that it is God the Father talking to God the Son And as he makes him a covenant for the people, this is a glimpse of the the primary and most important covenant, the covenant of redemption. We are all aware that the fact of the fact that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible and that the doctrine of the Trinity is never clearly, explicitly, and unambiguously spelled out. But it is only hinted at in passages sprinkled throughout the Bible. Likewise, the first and most important of the covenants, the covenant of redemption, which is a compact, a contract, and an agreement between the members of the Trinity, is not anywhere clearly, explicitly, and ambiguously spelled out. But we do find it hinted at in a multitude of places, such as Isaiah 42.6, where the Father is giving the Son as a covenant for the people his people. This is the covenant of redemption, and it precedes all other covenants. Today, as we start our survey of the book of Genesis, we'll focus on seven main topics. The first being dominion, and I'm not talking about voting machines. The second, covenants. Third, sin. The fourth, judgment. The fifth, grace. The sixth, providence. And the seventh, revelation. Now, initially, I considered going through the entire book, looking at just one topic at a time. However, that would have resulted in seven passes through the book of Genesis, which would not only take too long, but would be torturous to keep straight in our heads. 
So I decided to stick to a chronological approach to the survey, which means that we will go through the book from start to finish, and I will point out each topic as we come to it. Actually, we won't make it all the way through the book of Genesis today, so this will be the first of a two-part message. Since we'll be covering so much material, I've also created an outline of the topic, which I mentioned already, to make it easier for you to follow along and take notes on near each topic if you are so inclined. Of the four questions, the title of today's message is Why Beginnings Matter. And that could be asked as a question, why do beginnings matter? The answer would be, as you see on the top of your handout, beginning, the beginning of a thing may hint at its eventual destination. And I would add to that, that's especially true if there is a grand overall plan that includes every detail of all things in that plan especially if there's a grand overall plan that includes every detail of all things in the plan. Since God is all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, and unchanging, we can trust that he has included every detail of all things in his plan. Therefore, we can expect that in the book of Genesis, we will discover the eventual destination of all things but most particularly and of greatest interest to us, the destination of those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Now, the answer to the first of the four questions, what is the subject of this message, is have you found favor? Okay, okay, well, that's a bit of a vague and not very specific question, so let me add, let me add to it a little bit. How about have you found favor with God? The verse that gave me the ideal for the subject of this message was Genesis 6.8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Dispensationalism arbitrarily divides up, history, up the history told in the Bible into distinct dispensations, periods of time during which they claim that God deals with mankind according to different principles. The alleged first dispensation is called innocence. And it allegedly covers the time from the creation or the recreation after the gap of man up to his cosmic rebellion, which would be seven or eight, maybe nine days max. It's the shortest of the dispensations, by the way. And it's probably, well... The gap theory I've mentioned in all three of my previous messages was actually developed by the dispensationalists. They developed the gap theory for two reasons. First, as an explanation for when Lucifer, since when we first see him in Genesis chapter 3, he has already fallen, for when Lucifer fell. The only time in the previous two chapters that they could find a spot to wedge in the time when Lucifer fell was between verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1. But there's a second more practical reason for the development of the gap theory. And that was the calculations by geologists and paleontologists that claimed that the earth was billions of years old. Yet, according to the Bible record, the earth is only 6 to maybe 10,000 years old. By theorizing a time gap, 
especially one that could be billions of years long between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 2, an interpretation of the Bible was inferred that would harmonize with an old earth and not be in juxtaposition against the calculations of the scientists. Now, in the seven dispensations, there's seven because the whole idea of the dispensations was based upon two things, the seven days of creation and the concept we find in the Psalms that a day is with or a, a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is a day. And so each of the dispensations, except for the first one, the short one, is not exactly a thousand years, but several hundred and a couple of them several thousand years long. The second of those dispensations was called the dispensation of conscience, and it allegedly covered the time from Adam and, when Adam and Eve were deported from the Garden of Eden to the time of the flood. The third time period is called the dispensation of human government, which allegedly covers from the flood to the Tower of Babel. The fourth time period is called the dispensation of promise, and it allegedly covers the time from when Abraham is called to the bondage of Israel in Egypt. The fifth time period is called the dispensation of the law, and it allegedly covers the period of history from the time God gave Moses the Ten Commandments until Jesus was crucified on the cross. The sixth time period is called the dispensation of grace, and it allegedly covers the time from Pentecost until the second coming of Christ. Finally, the last time period is called the dispensation of the kingdom, and it allegedly covers from Christ's great white throne of judgment up to the new, when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. Now, to be fair with the dispensationalists, and I must do that because I don't want to appear like I'm a bully just picking on them. Since it is dishonest to create a character of, caricature of your adversary that is an inaccurate straw man, just so that you can easily refute it, the dispensationalists do not claim that God never showed grace to anyone before the day of Pentecost, but only that in the sixth dispensation, that the strongest characteristic principle of God's dealing with mankind during that dispensation is grace. However, dispensationalists have also been known for the way that they pit grace against the law, as if the two were mortal enemies, yin and yang opposites of each other. When you listen to dispensationalists paint their picture of the panoramic view of the divine plan and purpose of the ages, it's quite clear that God was very miserly with his grace until the day of Pentecost. Up through and including the crucifixion of Christ, according to the dispensationalists, God was a hardcore legalist, unforgiving, unrelenting, and unmoved. Or at least he was nowhere near as gracious as he became from the day of Pentecost going forward to today. Now, it is also important to remember that one of the objections of the original dispensational teachers was to give their students and followers an easy-to-understand, big-picture overview of the story of redemption, which is something that I'm sort of trying to do. 
And because dispensationalism is the primarily held biblical view in America today, that is why I refute it at every chance possible. Most people don't know how pervasive, and it is a complete worldview, and that's why everywhere we find it intruding on the truth of the Bible, we need to expose it and refute it. At least that seems to be part of my personal mission. It is important to remember that one of the objections of the original dispensational teachers was to give their students an easy-to-understand big overview of the story of redemption. So it was an important feature that the dispensationalists had names names that depicted the primary principle by which God was dealing with man during that time period. For this made the scheme easier to believe and remember. Well, easier to remember, not necessarily easier to believe. However, as we begin the survey of the book of Genesis, one of the things that really jumps out at us is how many times we see God being gracious to people, certainly far more gracious than they deserved. So then, since I went on a bit of a sidebar there, the answer to the first question, what is the subject of this message, is have you found favor? Have you found favor with God? Has God been gracious to you? I'm going to front load the first two questions today. So the answer to the second question, what response did the message ask of me, is... God wants me to thoroughly examine myself. Have I received his grace? Like Noah, have I found grace in the eyes of the Lord? With that, and with great trepidation, let us dive into the book of Genesis. If you look at your note outlook pa- uh, your outline page, <clears throat> you will see that I at the top I listed three um, general divisions of the book from chapters 1 through 3, chapters 4 through 11, and chapters 12 through 50. Today, I hope to be able to get through about chapter 35. The first point that I wanted to, the first passage I wanted to point out is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, where God said, let us make man in our image. Here we see two things. First of all, a hint of the doctrine of the Trinity, which we find nowhere clearly spelled out. And to find it so early is a very encouraging fact. The second, it is a hint of our eventual destination. If God is making us in his image, it would seem that he's making us for fellowship with him. In verse 28, God said to them, have dominion. This is important because, as I mentioned in the last, both of the last two messages, postmillennialism, theonomics or reconstructionism, are postmillennial eschatological views. And that is the view that our church holds is based on the fact that God gave man dominion in the beginning. That dominion was forfeited when man sinned, but God intends to not only redeem, I believe, a majority of Adam's race as his elect, but also to 
to reconcile all things, that full dominion that he gave to Adam back to himself in Christ. So I think it's markedly important that we see it again so early in the scriptures. In chapter 2, verse 17, we read, Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. This is where we find the first statement of the covenant of works, the second covenant, the second most important covenant in the Bible, because it is the covenant of works that Jesus fulfills where Adam failed to keep it on our behalf. In chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, Eve took of its fruit and ate. Her husband followed her, and then they knew that they were naked. Here we see the first mention of sin and judgment. God hasn't pronounced judgment on their sin yet, but the fact that they knew that they were naked is already a clear indication of the judgment of God. They know that they have done wrong. That's the beginning of of coming to the Lord is repentance, and the beginning of repentance is to know that what you have done is wrong. In chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, the Lord God made garments of skin and clothed them. Here we see God being gracious to them. God could have chose to wipe them out, kill both of them, because he told Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But instead, God has mercy on them. I, I know we, we read in the theologians that they died spiritually, but I believe that when God said, the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, implied complete death. Not just spiritual death, but physical death as well. And so when God makes skins and clothes them, he's hinting at the sacrifice that will be made to eventually cover their sins. But he's also showing a very gracious mercy. Instead of killing them, he's having compassion on them. Because God is a compassionate God, a merciful God, and a gracious God. In chapter 4, Verse 15, we read where God says, If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. On the first murderer, God has mercy. He doesn't say, yeah, and I'll send them all after you to kill you. No, he says, I will have mercy on you. We have a, we, our God is a merciful and long-suffering God, even with the wicked. In chapter 5, verses 4 through 20, we see the litany of Adam and his descendants, that, and each one ends the same, and he died. The consequences of sin. Adam's death penalty was not carried out immediately upon his committing of sin, upon his breaking of the covenant of works. But he did eventually die, and all of his descendants, all of us do. Which is why eternal life is such a beautiful offering of the gospel. In chapter 6, which Rob read for us in verse 5, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 
This is an important revelation about us and our depravity. When I first understood the doctrines of grace and I looked at the five points of tulip, one of the things I did in my mind is I saw that the T of total depravity is like the opposing thumb, whereas the other points are like the fingers. Without the opposing thumb, the other points don't need to be there. They're useless. It's the total depravity of man that makes the plan of redemption necessary. And I believe here in chapter 6, verse 5, we, sleep, we see the clearest declaration of the total depravity of man. So this is revelation of an extremely important point to us. Because unless we know our depravity, we will not know our desperate need of salvation. Our, knowing our depravity is a part of the conviction of sin that the Holy Spirit will lead us to. In verse 8, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was included in every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Noah wasn't a Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. God, God didn't look at all the people alive and say, ah, there, that guy Noah, he's pretty good. No, Noah was in the same boat with everyone else. And if God did not choose to save him, Noah would have perished in the flood along with everyone else because every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Noah found grace. God mercifully had grace on Noah when he didn't need to. In chapter 8, verse 22, after the flood, we read that while the earth remains, these things shall not cease. This is another reiteration of the covenant of redemption, or at least it's not a covenant of works. Because God says these things will happen and there's no conditions for man to keep. God sovereignly declares that these things shall not cease. And that should gladden our hearts today when we're told that our use of fossil fuels are going to melt the polar ice caps and that sea levels will rain, rise and drown all, all the coastal cities. If that were to happen, God would be breaking this promise. In chapter 9, God says, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Again, there's no conditions on that covenant. Now we're going to jump to chapter 12. Verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, Go to the land I will show you. Again, another example of the covenant of redemption. As of yet, there is no requirement given to, to Abraham on his part. There's no part for Abraham to keep in this covenant. God is telling him to go to the land that he will show him. God is giving Abraham something very graciously. In verse 15... This is probably one of the most important passages here in the early part of Genesis because it's the passage that the reformers latched onto when they recovered the gospel. Here's one of the earliest statements of 
the most important truths of the true gospel, justification by faith, justification by faith and by grace. He, Abraham, believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham believed the Lord because God enabled him to believe the Lord. Again, Abraham wasn't some goody two-shoes that God looked throughout the Ur of the Chaldeans and said, ah, this guy will work. He's got some rough edges, but I can, I can clean him up. And he'll be an excellent example of how a godly man should be. Now, I've ventured that Abraham had the same problem that Noah did. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. God had grace on Abraham, just like he did on Noah. And he was justified. He was counted as righteous because he believed God. Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. R.C. Sproul tells a story how one of the first conferences he spoke up spoke at that afterwards people would come up and ask him to sign their bible and he thought that was just the strangest request as if he was the author of the book and then he saw in many bibles there was not only a signature but a verse of scripture and they said would you please put down your life verse and he thought life verse what He'd never heard of this before. What are you people talking about, my life first? So the first time somebody requested of him this of him, he put down Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. And he said, the person went away and they came back a few minutes later and they said, did you make a mistake? Because I looked that verse up and I don't understand how that could possibly be a life verse. And R.C. said he explained to them that when the flaming torch passed between the pieces, it was another evidence of the covenant of redemption. Abraham was asleep on the ground. He had no part in ratifying this covenant. God alone was ratifying this covenant with Abraham. And he said, I can rest with ease knowing that it's not up to me to keep my end of the covenant of redemption. God swears by himself. And he will keep it because he is God. In chapter 17, verse 9, God tells Abraham, You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you. And I believe that this is evidence of a new, reco- a new covenant or a different covenant. Or let's say it looks like a blending of the covenant of redemption with the covenant of works, because now Abraham has something to do. Him and his descendants are to keep the sign of circumcision as their part of the covenant. We're going to jump again to chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah and did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah tried to give Abraham a child using her handmaid, Hagar. But that wasn't God's way. Sarah was barren. She couldn't make herself get pregnant. And by this time, she was too old to even think about having children. But God, in his sovereignty, he did to Sarah as he had promised. 
and he caused her to bear Abraham a child, the child of promise. In chapter 22, verses 16 and 17 read, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and the sands that are on the seashore. This is a very important verse for a number of reasons. God says, by myself I have sworn. I will surely bless you because you have done this. But his doing it was not of his own strength. If left up to himself, I think Abraham would not have gotten as far as raising the knife above his son's chest. The other thing that I find so fascinating about this verse, as a post-millennialist and one who believes that the majority of the human race are going to be of the elect by the time the end comes, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. That is a big number. That is a number that is far larger than all the Israelites who have ever lived on the earth. That is the number of the elect, and I believe that it is going to be in the billions, trillions, or quadrillions, it's going to be a huge number. And I think that this verse is where we see the first hint of that. If we jump to chapter 24, right there near the bottom of page 1, verse 48, Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord. This is Eliezer, Abraham's servant speaking. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way. Remember, Abraham sent Eliezer to go find a wife for Isaac. And I would say that we could include Eliezer's name in the list of Abraham, Isaac, Eliezer, and Jacob because the way he, he speaks here, I worship the Lord and bless the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who led me by the right way. This is a man who has at least some reverent understanding of God. And being the servant of Abraham, I think we, we would be surprised if he didn't. On the top of the next page, Genesis 25. We're going to jump to chapter 25, verse 11. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. Here we see the beginning, the first hint of the transition, that the covenant is going to pass from Abraham to his descendants. He prom- God promised it, but here we see the first hint of it. In verse 23 of chapter 25, we read that Rebekah, his wife, is told by God that two nations are in your womb and that the older shall serve the younger. Paul cites this in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 12, as his proof of divine sovereign election. And it is also gracious, merciful, and provident. And it's a revelation. God is revealing to Rebecca something she could not know in and of herself. 
we jump to chapter 26, verses 2 through 5, and then verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him and said, I will be with you and bless you. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. So here we see a clear indication of the passing on of the covenant of redemption because there are no, there, there are no parts for Isaac to keep. God is reiterating the covenant of redemption to Isaac. We jump to verse tw- uh, chapter 27, verse 23. He did not recognize him, so he blessed him. This is where Jacob steals Esau's birthright and gets the blessing of the firstborn from his father Isaac. Here we see another evidence of sin. And we see one of the first indications of the character of Jacob. Although he's told to do this by his mother, Jacob proves to be very capable of deceiving and conniving as we follow him later through his life. And that's going to be very important. We'll discuss that more in a little bit. In chapter 28, verses 13 to 14, I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. In you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Again, this is a passing on of the covenant of redemption. Now from Isaac to Jacob. Chapter 29, what is this you have done to me? Why then have you deceived me? Jacob cries to Laban. He's getting a dose of his own medicine. He's learning what it, what it feels like to be deceived, to be tricked. And this will happen to him a, a number of other times in his life. But God blesses him in spite of this. In chapter 30, verse 43, thus the man increased greatly. <clears throat> Notice the author here does not call him by name. He refers to him as the man. Because Jacob is proving himself to be quite a despicable character. Yet God blessed him in spite of it. Not because of his works, but because God promised to his grandfather and to his father and to him a chapter earlier that all the nations of the earth, all the families of the earth would be blessed through his offspring. Chapter 32, verses 1 and 24. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. I know many people who say, oh, I wish I could see an angel. Jacob had numerous encounters with angels and with God directly. This is revelation. The angels of God met him. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled him until the break of day. Jacob had direct, tangible, physical revelations from God. That must have been truly astounding. Why? Because Jacob was a worthy, godly man? No, because he was the descendant of his father and his grandfather, and God was going to do a work through him. In this wrestling, God is chastening him and correcting him. And there's more chastening and correcting to come in Jacob's life. But God is blessing him even in his great distress 
and his struggles. Chapter 33, verse 4, But Esau ran to meet him, Jacob his brother, and embraced him, and they wept. Jacob was so fearful that Esau was going to, that he was going to continue to hold the grudge from when he tricked him out of his birthright, that when he came back, Esau would come and just not be able to hesitate and control himself to, to kill Jacob. And yet God already changed the heart of Esau and made him welcome Jacob back. Chapter 34, Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me. This is where they slaughtered the, all of the, the people of the village of Shechem because he violated their sister. And Jacob's reaction to their... Now, their, their deeds were wrong. Jacob's a terrible father. His sons are not godly men either. But his response is, you have brought trouble on me. All he's concerned about is, you're going to put me in danger. He's, he's still selfish. He's still thinking about himself in an ungodly way. And at the end of that, that uh, passage, it says, and they said, well, they, they should not have done that. He should not have treated our sister like a prostitute. They were right. Their, their solution for, for resolving that or reacting to that was wrong. But Jacob's response is even worse. You guys are putting me in danger. The point I'm making is that we don't see anything redeemable about Jacob's character. His fathering is, he's not a model character in any way, but he's still one of God's elect. Chapter 35, verses 1 and 9, God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel. God appeared to Jacob again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. It's not like Jacob has become sanctified to the point where he's a godly man, and that's why God's changing his name. But God is changing his name, which is an indication it's an indication, it's a hint of his eventual destination. Later in chapter 35, verses 28 and 29, the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac lived five years longer than his father. That's, that's amazing. People today would give their fortunes away to be able to live past 80 in good health. He lived to 180 years old. And Isaac breathed his last and he died. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. When I first became a believer, I thought that the biblical character that I related to the most was the Apostle Paul. For as a new convert, I was on fire for the Lord and zealous for the things of God even though as I became more mature in my faith, I came to realize how imperfectly I knew the things of God. However, as I came to know sound doctrine a little better and became more acutely aware of my own sinfulness, my personal depravity, I began to realize that the biblical character that I truly related to the most was not the Apostle Paul, 
but the grandson of Abraham, Jacob. Jacob the supplanter. Jacob the schemer. Jacob the manipulator, the conniving cheater who stole his brother's birthright and worked so hard to outwit his father-in-law, Laban. What biblical character do you relate to the most? Getting back to the title of this message, why beginnings matter. The answer is that beginning of a thing may hint at its eventual destination. Notice the way I phrased that, may hint at. Just as the wheat and the tares are often indistinguishable until they produce their fruit just before the harvest, so in the world, reprobates may appear to be elect for a time, and some of the elect may look like reprobates. But those of us who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, those of us who indeed, like Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have been recipients of the grace of God, we should strive with all our might, with everything in us, to work out our salvation, to make our calling and election sure. But first, we must be sure that we have received the grace of God. The third question on the bottom of the handout Page two reads, was a how-to given to me for me to respond appropriately. If you would, turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read the first five verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul says to the Corinthians, this is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with the power, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So what is this self-administered test that I need to take and pass? Well, I'm afraid that because I've already gone too long today, that we'll have to wait until the next message to explore the details of that test more fully. But for the moment, I will just say that it requires honest, introspection and evaluation of my true heart condition. Jonathan Edwards wrote a book entitled A Treatise Concerning Religious Affections near the end of the First Great Awakening because during the revival of the 1740s, Edwards saw two diametrically opposed views on emotions and their presence in the conversion of people to Christianity. One side denounced emotive expressions of faith, claiming that they were nothing more than attention-seeking excesses. True spirituality was not expressive and swept up, 
but modest and buttoned down, they asserted. But because so many people were claiming to be converted, Edwards had the time and to examine many new converts very carefully over an extended period of time, as well as those people who seemed to have been totally bypassed by the revival. And he came to the conclusion that, quote, anyone who has no religious affections, that is, spirit-stirred love within their hearts, is in a state of spiritual death, and is wholly destitute of the powerful, quickening, saving influences of the Spirit of God upon his heart. Edwards also wrote, quote, If the great truths of Christianity are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. They will move you emotionally. A regenerated human heart cannot remain unmoved by the love of God that has invigorated it with new heavenly life. Do the truths of God reside only in your head? Or have they penetrated into the center of your being? Have they broken open the prison doors of your heart, allowing the blazing light of God's Holy Spirit to begin the process of purging you of your self-focus, the process of sanctifying you in preparation for your eventual destination? Let's review the questions that we have looked at so far. Question one, what is the subject of this message? Have you found favor with God? Has God been gracious to you? Question number two, what response did the message ask of me? God wants me to thoroughly examine myself. Have I indeed received his grace? Like Noah, have I found grace in the eyes of the Lord? Question number three, was a how-to given to me for me to respond appropriately? Yes, well, at least a start. I need to examine myself according to the scriptures to determine if I am in the faith, if the spirit of Christ dwells in me or not. Question number four, was a time frame specified how long the how-to might take for me to complete? Once again, this is going to be the hardest question to answer, mainly because, like snowflakes, every one of us is different. And doing a thorough self-evaluation is difficult because our hearts are exceedingly deceitful and only God can truly know the state of our hearts. So we will require the two-edged sword of his word to reveal to us our true estate. Let us pray. Oh God, help each one of us to do a deep, thorough examination of our own heart and show us if we have indeed been saved by Christ's work alone. Make it clear beyond any shadow of a doubt if the Holy Spirit has genuinely taken me into union with Christ and has taken up residence within me. Oh Father, don't allow me to remain barren. Cause me to bear fruit for your glory. Prune me and purge me that I may trust you more easily and readily in each and every new situation as it arises. Cause me to obey your commandments with delight, not merely out of a dutiful obligation, but out of the deepest gratitude to you for your selfless sacrifice on my behalf. Amen.